Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Yeah, to start with, quick reminder, you know, we are on iTunes, Podcast Republic, TuneIn, um, and now we just figured out how to get on Spotify, so... um, if you go if you go to our Twitter account, our pinned tweet will have all the various ways to listen, uh, in addition to just going to the website, leftanchor.com. Um, and yeah, thanks for all the reviews and comments we've been getting. That's been very helpful. Yes, please keep that up. And, and we definitely, uh, as some of you know from corresponding with us, appreciate the suggestions for, for future guests or future topics. And um, we really do take in the feedback and appreciate it. So, uh, just want you to know that we encourage more of that. Thank you. So we got a book today. Uh, we're reading, I, I have to say it, uh, because it's my burden to mispronounce, uh, every, every, every word in the, all the languages of the world. But it, this one's called winner take all by Anand Giridharadas. Apologies. Sure. Apologies. Um, you know, as the man once said, you, you, I, I'm from the States, as you can tell from by my complete lack of sophistication. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, um, this this book, yeah, it's it's again called Winner Take All. And it's about basically the philanthropy business. And so it's by a guy who was like an Aspen Ideas scholar. He worked for like the Aspen Institute, that famous, uh, you know, gathering that happens in the mountains of Colorado every year where all the thought leaders get together and they talk about hashtag solutions and hashtag markets and hashtag blah, blah, blah. And he became, you know, somewhat disillusioned with that whole sector of activity. And he wrote a book as a fellow for this place, basically um, I think you should mention the subtitle. I think it's an important subtitle. What is the subtitle? I didn't write it down. It's so the full. It's winners take all: colon the elite charade of changing the world. Yeah, which I think is an important uh, foreshadowing of the argument in, in text to come. Yeah, and um, so this will be part of our uh. Uh, what what you might call a, a kind of book club, you know, we're just reading a couple of books now and then. And uh, this one, I think, is a is just a, a very, very interesting and and very well written and very uh, sort of quietly devastating portrayal of this particular topic. Um, it's de- it's definitely. No, we'll get into it in a little bit more detail, but it's it's really a great uh, illustration of the of the strategy of show don't tell. You know, I think that's advice that sometimes is kind of overstated. You know, you can just tell sometimes, but this case, like he just hangs these people on their own words and actions without. You know, he's very wry and kind of subtle in his own commentary, but yeah, it's just uh, it's just kind of quietly devastating. So it's a, a well-written book, both in the devastation of the argument against the elites and the, as we'll see, self-legitimating narratives they tell themselves about what they're up to. Um, and we'll get into what, what sort of elites he's talking about. But it's it's written in a compelling way that is um, 
you know, journalistic in the sense that he's uh, telling true stories of particular individuals. And it's, you know, very accessible, very, as you say, show, not tell, um, and compelling in the argument that is shown through those stories, um, which which makes it, you know, this was published this year in, in just a couple months ago in August, end of August. Uh, highly recommend it because it does, I think, you know, we've talked recently about uh, fascism and capitalism and, and um, Trump and violence. So those right-wing fascist populist reactions, I think, are important to understand. Uh, also important to understand are some of the conditions that gave rise to it that have legitimating myths. And so we can talk more about how this book will help us explore those, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a quote from an um, interview that he did with New York Magazine where he says, you know, changing the world had become the wingman of rigging the system. And you know, basically, he's going around to all these conferences and all these, you know, fundraising events where people are doing sort of various forms of charitable activity and sort of viewing um, the ways in which the delimiting of delimiting of topics of conversation the selection of subjects the the exclusion of other subjects uh serves in many cases to entrench the power of the wealthy who are funding these type of organizations and in the in you know in in some of the worst cases can serve as just like little more than an indulgence you know from people who are just just pillaging society he goes into a lot of detail about all the various charities that the uh, sacklers have funded this is the you know i would say arguably the 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 largest global drug dealer in in the entire world um you know they they uh basically have been pushing oxycontin on um you know the united states and and many other countries but primarily you know, in the United States and a primary, if not like the overwhelming force behind these, the plague of opioid overdoses and deaths, you know, which killed something like 65,000 people last year. Um, and they, you know, these, these, these guys were more or less suborning the, the government of West Virginia, you know, like lobbying so hard to prevent them as this like fairly feeble West Virginia government tried to like basically mobilize itself to protect the citizenry from this like cancerous epidemic of addictive drugs. And they were, you know, just pushing back at every stage of, of, uh, you know, the political process, electing people, um, you know, putting money in pockets and, you know, like just like ferociously arguing against sign of regulatory responses. And then, you know, they go to New York uh, and other cities and they, they fund the operas and these art galleries and all these other things. Um, you know, some of which may be like fairly nice in their own way, but like they don't even begin to counterbalance the negative effects of their right. business. And no, and so I think we should mention the essential thesis 
I think, um, or argument of the book, which is the elites. So he's talking about elites, not like Goldman Sachs, not like so many of the terrible forces of disruption and destruction that essentially know they're raping and pillaging and devastating uh, our democracy or putative democratic republic, right? He's specifically talking about the Elon Musks, the Jeff Bezos, uh, and people not nearly that wealthy in Silicon Valley and other places who, unlike perhaps some contingents on Wall Street or in other parts of corporate America, um, who, unlike those that know they're really just totally taking people for a ride and exploiting and, and, and profiting, and they don't really mind. I mean, if you read like Liquidated, the ethnography of Wall Street, you see that the very ethos of Wall Street is is the not the win-win, but the win-lose. Like, I, I'm not happy if I win. If you also win, I want you to lose. There's, yeah. So there's a lot of that, a lot of that knowing malice and knowing um, domination and, and exploitation. He's talking about something else, which is the the narratives and the myths uh, of those who think that, as as he writes, they are doing well by doing good and vice versa, right? Yeah. So they are making money by doing good for the community, and by doing good for the community, they are making their money. And this is total bullshit, but it is scarily. So the, the thing he thinks is so dangerous is so many people both the actual leaders and wealthy purveyors of this narrative and and of uh these enterprises but also the acolytes and young people coming into the workplace uh and beyond buy into this nonsense hence you know ted talks and davos and, and so many things that we can associate uh where kind of the just the, the stroke contest about how uh, do-gooders are just um, innovating, right? And all these these buzzwords, as you say, uh, in order to save the world. Uh, how pernicious and dangerous that is. That that's what he's trying to really debunk and expose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Sacklers are are the ext- extreme case. Um, but yeah, on the other half of the of the equation, you have you know you have people who maybe. They don't, um, their business is just like an ordinary business. You know, they're not doing anything that's super destructive, but what they are doing is making tons and tons and tons of money because of, you know, the evolution of neoliberalism over the past 30 years. And they're taking that money and what, and, and they're sort of, you know, they're using their, their enormous power that that money gives them to say that whatever sort of harms that we are trying to ameliorate here are going to take place in a way that does not threaten the, you know, uh, stability and functionality of the system that got and preserves my money, you know, that like the, the, uh, you know, like a lot of these types of initiatives have to do with uh, like poor health care. Um, you know, amongst a lot of populations, like, uh, you know, occasionally you see stuff that's even like really un- inarguably pretty nice. So they like, like free dental clinics in the, you know, like the Kentucky Hills, you know, just like take over a high school gym with like 40 dentist chairs and just people come in and just have their like rotting teeth pulled out, uh, you know, all day long that have just been agony for people for, for weeks and weeks and, or months or years. 
Um, and it's like, yeah, that's a pretty nice thing. But do they ever talk about stuff like Medicare for all or like increasing the top marginal tax rate to 90 percent, you know, to be like actually the basic economic system that has enabled me to become fantastically wealthy is the major problem here. And why, in a sense, why all these people are so poor in the first place. Um, exactly. And I think that's, the, I think the key is not just that they're not doing enough, which is true, not just that, you know, the goodwill of corporations or even these nonprofits or, or apps for um, charitable causes, not, not just that those are insufficient, they are, but also that the very systems and enterprises that people are pouring into to do these things are the very structures and enterprises that are causing the social problems and the suffering that these things are aiming to alleviate. So they're perpetuating the underlying causes of the symptoms they're treating and patting themselves on the back for it, right? So, so that the problem is, it, you know, in part is one that allows power structures to uh, solidify and hold their power because many people who would otherwise be perhaps part of the left and perhaps be down for more revolutionary radical forms of change are convinced that their participation in the system that's causing the problems is actually beneficent and helpful when fundamentally it's not altering anything. Yeah, um, he goes through a great example of a, a woman called uh, Amy Cuddy, who's uh, a, like a psych psychologist, a feminist, and she did a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of like like fairly radical work in terms of, you know, just gender discrimination and so forth. And um, he just tells the story basically of how she gave a TED Talk on one like somewhat insubstantial part of her research something that certainly wasn't central to what she had done but it was about stances it's like how to stand um you know like like whether uh standing in a certain way could sort of like ameliorate gender prejudice in the in the um in businesses and so you know she ended up giving a ted talk on this and um presented it in a sort of very self-helpy way to be like, oh, yeah, if you stand like this, you will sort of uh, increase your, you know, something to do with like hormones and you'll feel more confident and, you know, your pay gap will probably be decreased if you do this enough. And people just ate that shit up like it like it was it, it, I mean, it was kind of goofy. I, I... Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think. uh Steven Pinker has something run up, running up his leg. What was the Chris Matthews uh, line? Remember that? Oh, a thrill rant runs up your leg. Oh, he was, yeah, that's who was it, he that's... talking about? He was talking about that hound dog looking guy who was on Law and Order. I don't oh. re even remember. For some reason, I, I, I associated it with Obama or something, but I, I don't remember what it was. Uh, I just I just know that Steven Pinker got really, really happy, even if he wasn't listening to this podcast, which he's probably not, let's be fair. Uh, I, th I think when, when it just psychically kind of through the, the, the universe's um, ways of transmitting uh, phenomena, whatever they might be, when you uttered the words that the kind of the hormonal body imbalance by the way you're standing will give rise to some force that could change, uh, you know, and make things more egalitarian was exactly the kind of uh, 
scientific rationalist basis for social change that he would love. So yeah, um, good work. Absolutely. But anyway, you know, it's like a, a process of this person becoming fairly wealthy and influential and like a hot commodity on the speaking circuit. You know, she's charging like 40,000 to come in and give these presentations but that money and that influence is predicated on her only saying this self-help bullshit about like how standing is going to undo sexism. And it's like, the, you know, the, it's like, <laughs> come on, you know? Well, to be, to be fair, we went from standing to, you know, leaning in. So if you just, you stand first and then you lean in and you have the, the various, yeah. various gestures and movements of your body, uh, that, that is actually part of the book's argument too, which is as long as, the the solutions are totally non-threatening and can happen at the individual level without any sacrifice of the elites or or you know the, the moneyed class <laughs> that would be great yes if everyone could uh just be self-reliant and have a good attitude and maybe eat your veggies uh <laughs> then then everything will be okay yeah so so okay so we have this devastating argument but i think there's even more to it right um because it's no, I think it's no news that the Jeff Bezoses of the world are drinking their own Kool-Aid and, and the Elon Musks are toking their own weed. He probably grows his own weed, I assume. Um, yeah. But, but what is the significance other than excoriating? So I think that the point is that we're not just, as fun as it is, excoriating individual rich people for um, the, the kind of the rationalizing... Uh, cognitive dissonance that they have to justify their own existence and how they're exploiting people to make their wealth. That That's fine and true as far as it goes, but I think there's more um, that we can do with this this text and this argument structurally to understand the, the danger um, and how it relates to, like you said, the, the individuals, not just that are getting successful off of TED Talks, but um, like the college student who considered herself an Aristotelian at the, at the beginning of the book, um, Ms. Cohen, you know, she, she was a, a do-gooder, might be a rabbi one day, and maybe he was considering that. Instead, she takes a job at McKinsey, and she really, really wants to do good is the thing. And she's even steeped in the Aristotelian notion that money is not an end in itself and can lead to all these terrible ways that harm human flourishing within the polis. So literally a young idealistic person wants to do good could not be more prime uh, to help actually change the world. But even she gets bound up and caught within this snare of thinking that working for McKenzie will be the way to do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, this it's a process of it seems to me like a like a you might call it a structural and an ideological form of, of legitimizing the status quo, you know? So on the one hand, you just have this massive effective propaganda apparatus. And I don't think it's consciously constructed, but, um, you know, it's just like through a sort of selected process selection process of who gets funded and who doesn't, who gets the high profile jobs and who doesn't, um, such that, you know, you you end up where you go to an elite school, you never hear about anything other than, you know, going to work at uh, McKinsey or Goldman Sachs is really the way to learn how to, you know, do solutions or whatever. Um, and then on the other side, you have the fact that working for McKinsey pays you 
fuck ton of money. You know, it's like you come out of Harvard, you're like 22 and you're making six figures right out of the gate. But here's the, here's the more pernicious thing that the McKinsey people that interview and hire young college graduates like this Georgetown student, they know that they are idealistic or a lot of them are anyway. And so they sold her a bill of goods about we're going to actually change the world. We're the ones that have all these nonprofit and charitable uh, causes that we're taking these young brains to to work on and, and we're going to actually be the, the the cream of the crop when it comes to figuring out global problems and how to solve these crises and sure enough right president obama taps mckinsey to do just that and so it which is in one way totally totally confirming the logic because that narrative and uh resource has permeated neoliberalism, including, um, you know, the, the Democrats like like Obama. And so she she says uh, at this point that she is both completely disillusioned, or not completely disillusioned, but she is both uh, simultaneously disappointed and excited at this prospect because she's excited to actually do something meaningful. At the same time, she's disheartened that Obama didn't go to say, oh, I don't know, community organizers in order to try to figure out how to change things. Yeah. Um, so so there's something really pervasive about, um, about who actually is called upon to suggest how to deal with social problems and ills and then what the rationale and legitimizing myths are, narratives are that perpetuate you know, the rationale for doing just that. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think, you know, the other side of the financial piece of it is, you know, it's like, okay, you have this, like, very tempting salary you can offer to people who, you know, let's be honest, do not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. Um, but on the other hand, like, all the, like, m- perhaps not all, but most of the you know, countervailing sources of, you know, working to do something that is like what a somewhat naive 22-year-old college graduate might want to think about. Like, those have all just been, like, gutted in the last, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So, I mean, probably most importantly, universities. Universities uh, have gone from a place where it's like, okay, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a bright person and I want to have a career in like doing good in some way, studying problems and so on and so forth like that, that has really been badly undermined. I think this is a very key point you're making because it wasn't just the battle of the reactionaries who say, forget this do good or nonsense. We just want individual responsibility uh, all the other myths of, of Thatcher, Reagan, and, and, the, and the kind of calls for just keeping those do-gooders from, from harming our ability to be free and greed is good, et cetera, et cetera. The, the thing that really devastated us was that the opposition party co-opted the resistance to that by saying, oh no, there's still a way to do good. Let's not lose our compassion, right? The, that, that, as opposed to liberty and freedom being the, the locus of uh, the ideological narrative. It's, it's no, we're going to retain progress and compassion and care and community 
but we're just going to privatize it. And we're going to just acknowledge that, you know, the actual end of history is thinking that there is a locus for any action, whether it's about wealth maximization or social concern that is outside of the market and outside of the expertise of, um, you know, the private sphere that gives rise to innovation and solutions and, and all the technocratic bullshit that we talked about that bleeds over into those people who go public private in their orientation, like the Clintons, right. Who are the kind of epitome of this nonsense, which is, to be good in government and to be uh, prosperous in business or to have the same skill sets and understandings of the world. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, another perverse uh, consequence of that going back to the universities again, is that you have these public institutions, which are supposed to be about public goods, public understanding, public education, um, get, you know, badly undermanned by austerity, the penetration of business logic into the university. And uh, they end up fundraising from uh, plutocrats. You know, you have the Koch brothers just buying up whole economic departments, economics departments wholesale. Um, you know, he, there's a big story about how George Mason University had basically entered into a secret arrangement with the Koch people that was like basically gave them hiring and firing control so that they would only appoint you know far right-wing libertarian professors and um but you know it's not just the right-wingers it's it's i mean centrist liberals are also devastating higher education with neoliberalism and yeah shit whether it's the focus on stem or whether it's the focus on um, just treating one of the areas of life that's supposed to be a public good, right? So this is very obvious. Uh, health, you know, healthcare, education, environment, and climate, these are things that are supposed to be public goods and not treated as commodities, just like we talked about with Polanyi and fictitious commodities. Uh, and yet the liberals, the neoliberals, want to treat higher education like a business and, you know, create these... Both the students are the customers, but also the products uh, that are going to be crafted for these employers. And in fact, you know, I have here, and I don't know if you want to talk about this now or or in a minute, because I think we want to bring in um, Antonio Gramsci, don't we? Uh, yeah. As a way to, to perhaps better understand the theoretical um, underpinnings of, of this argument and why it might be helpful to us. But... Um, I have these ads that I, I was reading the, the New York Times Sunday edition today, the magazine, and the first couple ads that I turned to are just so, so uh, exemplary in this pernicious neoliberal system. So I, I was talking about higher education, right? So the first thing I, I have here is a company, Gratify, I suppose, um, and, and you'll get a sense for what they do after I, I tell you what the ad is, right? But there's a picture of a, a young uh, white girl who has a sweatshirt, and her sweatshirt has a dollar sign and 67928 as the number on it. And then the ad reads, why did she borrow 67928 for tuition? <laughs> and then below that it says, she did it to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. I swear to God, I, 
I'm not I'm not even fucking joking. Why did she borrow 67,928 for tuition? She did it to work for you. And then below it says, now there's a job benefit that helps your employees pay off their student loans. Gradifi is gratitude. <laughs> and and what this I looked it up. What this business does is uh it's something that employers can do where you as an employee can direct some of your paycheck just like an HSA account, you know, for your health savings. You can you can have oh, um, part of part of your you can have part of your paycheck go to pay off the student loans. The student loans that you took out so you could be a wage slave to the employer and then you could thank the employer for taking some of your money out to pay the student loans that you took out so that you could be a wage slave for the employer. <laughs> and and it's gratitude. Then you'll be grateful you'll be grateful to the employer that they will take your money automatically and pay down the student loans. And I swear to God, this is both encapsulating the beneficence, the, the, you know, uh, the, uh, the noblesse oblige of the employers and literally saying that education is all about creating a wage slave who will basically be happy that you're letting them pay back the loans that they took out so they could be your wage. It's just, it's, um, it's amazing. It's, it's so amazing. Um, the next ad, I kid you not that I turn to the next page, the world will change. This university is designed to change with it. And then it talks about this co-op program, uh, where students not only go to school, but they get internships with companies by embracing change. Right. So, so it's talking about, literally how the world will change because we're going to give you internships to help you get a job with these companies that are going to change the world. And then last but not least, the th literally the third ad in a row that I find in this magazine. It's a wealth management company. I kid you not. This is what it reads. Every wealth strategy needs an end goal, like never ending wealth. There you go. Every... <laughs> MCM. Every wealth strategy needs an end goal. Yeah, MCM, exactly. For all those uh, read up on their marks, MCM. So, I don't know. You know, that's just what was popping up in my New York Times magazine today. And I thought that might be relevant to our discussion. I think this this makes a good transition into our sort of thinker for the, the episode. Um, Antonio Gramsci. Um, he's a guy, he, he was an Italian communist, um, who was a big, you know, during the time of, uh, Lenin and the Russian revolution, he was a, 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 you know, basically a communist organizer in Italy. And so he ended up in jail after the fascists took power in, uh, Italy in what, 1922. And so he ended up there. And that's where he wrote his uh, f most famous books, which is which are the uh, the prison notebooks, which is some kind of like semi incomplete musings on communism and political economy and so on and so forth. But he has some very interesting things to say about, uh, you know, ideology. The, how a society's ruling class justifies itself and, um, you know, how the the citizenry may come to 
believe may come to a consent to the rule of an elite as opposed to, you know, just, uh, as opposed to the type of like a, just a naked dictatorship where you just live in fear. He's talking about the kind of place where people actually come to think that their place in society is, you know, at the bottom or maybe towards the middle type of thing and that the rulers deserve to rule. Absolutely. Like you might find in a putative democratic republic where theoretically we all are equal and have the ability to choose and influence policy. Why do we oppress ourselves is the question. And this is this is part of the answer. Why do we oppress ourselves, right? Yeah. 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 And that, I think that leads nicely into one of his key his key concepts, which is just the idea of ideology. And he he talks he talks about ideology as, you know, I think in a fairly neutral sense and as like a way that a kind of like social grouping makes sense of the world. Um, one one way that might be a, a way to illustrate it in a way that, you know, sort of take it out of its modern context might be the idea of chivalry. Like this is very important ideology back in the, uh, you know, the Middle Ages which legitimized the role of the aristocracy because the, you know, the idea was that the peasants would do the laboring, but then the aristocrats would do the fighting that, that whenever there was any threat to the, uh, you know, the security of the, the land, the fief or whatever, the Lord's lands, then he would ride out on his horse and, you know, go do battle with the, the peoples, you know, the invaders and fight them off. Now, of course, this was like not exactly an accurate way of describing the Middle Ages for the most part, but it wasn't, it also wasn't entirely inaccurate. And I think that gets to an important point about ideology is that there's usually got to be a, a, a grain of truth in there to some degree. You know, ones that are just like total bullshit tend to fall apart. And in fact, that's what happened to chivalry when it became inarguable that the that that form of military, especially, was just like non-viable. Uh, the, 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 the ideology of chivalry just crumbled and collapsed. And, you, you know, new new ideologies came in to sort of like replace it. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know. That's one that's that's one concept there. Any comments on right, that? And yeah, so so I think that's that's very important. That's good. You know, there's so much we could talk about with Gramsci and what he introduces to the left in terms of understanding how power sustains itself. And you know, he's he's pushing against a few things. One thing he's pushing against is the, the kind of notion that there's this deterministic scientific materialism and um, this this dialectic of uh, of kind of inevitable material progress to communism and, and this notion that there. You know, it's about agency in a way and about the ways that ideology and what is is kind of uh, 
sometimes referred to as a superstructure that's epiphenomenal uh, or secondary and not really at the core of how change occurs, um, how ideology actually can't be too disambiguated from the actual material practices and social relations um, in society. So, so in other words, he's got a complex project going on, but what he's trying to show is that politics and class struggle is not a separate thing from the ideas that people have and the narratives they have and the words they choose uh, to help them make sense of the world. That involves also people for whom revolution or radical change would serve their interests. They can be persuaded um, through various mediums of civil society, whether it's art, whether it's uh, the rhetoric of politicians, whether it's these magazine pages that I discussed before in the New York Times. Cultural hegemony is something he introduces as the, the kind of meta narratives that we swim in often help the ruling class justify their own existence in the power structures so that those who would otherwise be pushed to be political and fight for their interests don't realize what their interests really are, is my way of putting it, just my language. And so I think Gramsci is trying to get at a more nuanced, uh, complicated sense of what the class struggle uh, politically needs to involve and implicate. And, and it leads to an analysis of... Um, how all these different methods of informing the way people make sense of the world uh, need to be kind of uh, looked at politically to see how they might be working politically. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, had uh, cultural hegemony. It's this, you know, this idea that, uh, like. When, when it's working, when, when you have this, like, accomplished, you have it, you know, such that, like, whoever happens to be in charge of society uh, will, um, you know, the, the rest of the population will, will believe that they will have internalized the, uh, you know, their sort of self-justifications, their, their ideology that um, they sort of propagate. Um, and yeah, one, one, uh, I think very concrete example of this in action, which, um, it, uh, is, it continues to be relevant is the idea of, of deficit worrying about the, the national debt. And he, you know, this is a thing which you could say concretely in the United States, especially has no influence whatsoever on the lives of ordinary people. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a phenomenon that is entirely internal to the, uh, you know, the, the federal government, which has to, you know, issue these, these bonds and has to, you know, pay the interest, but particularly because, you know, the United States has the privilege of having a global reserve currency and therefore enormous demand for United U.S. denominated assets, dollar denominated assets, that is. Like, it's just not something we've had to worry about basically since ever, since, you know, like at least the 1940s. And 
um, nevertheless, there's this massive anxiety over the national debt in a way that, you know, it doesn't really have all that much force in terms of like people voting on it necessarily, but it is constantly spoken of in supposedly neutral journalism as being a, a national emergency. It's constantly polled. People are constantly informed about it. Um, there's documentaries done. Um, and, uh, you know, Pete Peterson, uh, he, you know, the former hedge fund guy that who, who has since died, he, uh, he's a, I think he spent like a half a billion dollars over a decade or two basically on a bunch of institutes and publications, the major function, the major um, thrust of which was to say, you need to worry about the national debt. This is a big problem. And uh, despite the fact that it's garbage economics uh, and it's really not something that you need to worry about at all, uh, It's related to the austerity, isn't it? That are totally related to the way that austerity is pushed as being necessary when it has no real basis in in economic fact in terms of being good for the the economy, right? But there is this kind of uh, smuggled in moral slash normative um, ideology that, well, you know, the actual masses have to be punished uh, for for the debt that they get into, whereas the elites can do whatever, right? Like the debt, the national debt's never a problem when it's for a war or when it's, uh, you know, basically bailing out the banks. So so there's this, there's this continual uh, logic that um, forces the narrative a certain way when it harms the elites or benefits the elites versus everyone else. Yeah, right. And and the reason is because, as you're saying, that the uh, worrying about the deficit militates against government spending on behalf of, you know, basically the working class. And it it it's a convenient pretext for basically the the, um, you know, r- like rich people to say that the government should not be doing anything about unemployment or you know, poverty, um, and, uh, uh, Mikhail Kalechki, I believe, butchered that pronunciation again. He has a great (laughs) phrase about that in his famous essay, The Political Aspects of Full Employment, um, which is, you know, this is why, uh, he, he, why, um, why business, uh, capitalists, um, dislike full employment and particularly stimulus to restore employment in the depression, um, which is about, you know, this worrying about confidence gives uh, the business class a a large um, influence over economic policy, uh, which Kalichki says, everything which must may shake the state of confidence must be carefully avoided because it would cause an economic crisis. But once the government learns the trick of increasing unemployment by its own purchases, this powerful controlling device loses its effectiveness. Hence, budget deficits necessary to carry out government intervention must be regarded as perilous. The social function of the doctrine of sound finance is to make the level of employment dependent on the state of confidence. So this is very Gramsci reasoning, I think, to, to say that, you know, People have an 
an ideology and they sort of, you know, that, that has a, a major effect on how they view uh, economic policy, you know, legislation, any, the whole panoply of like stuff that can be done in politics. And in many cases, you can see things which have basically at bottom maybe an unconscious or a semi-conscious cynicism about them. And I think the, the, the austerity fetish over the last decade is absolutely all about that. It's, it's all about inherent resistance to the idea that you can basically just spend, 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 and have no, no consequence, in fact, positive consequences at like restoring uh, employment and production and growth in a way that uh, has nothing to do with philanthropists, with big tech barons, with innovators, with thought leaders. It's a bunch of bureaucrats sitting in offices in Washington, D.C., writing checks and doing good things. And that, that is abhorrent to the people who are, who the, this fellow is writing in his book, uh, Winner Take All. It, it is no coincidence that as, you know, Thomas Piketty shows in his, what, 700 and something page volume, Capital in the 21st Century, as basically all the data, and the, you know, the neoliberals love data, all the data shows that, that growing inequality is making the, the rich richer, and the richer you are, the richer it makes you, and the rest aren't, you know, the rising tide isn't kind of lifting all boats at all. And so the legitimating myth before used to be, well, it's okay, and this is even Rawlsian in, in, in a liberal uh, political philosophy sense, it's okay if there's growing inequality and if the rich get richer, so long as everyone in an absolute sense does better. And, and, and that's, you know, that's justice. Uh, well, that hasn't worked out in a while at all. So a new myth had to be created and a new approach to this problem had to be created. So there's no um, doubt in my mind that, you know, Jeff Bezos suddenly giving away a couple billion of his 60 or whatever billion dollars that he's worth uh, for charity. 160. And, and the, oh, sorry. I undershot that by a lot. <laughs> wow. It's just, it's just uh, you know, at some point it, it becomes real money, I tell you. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, like, it's no surprise that philanthropy uh, and kind of the elites recommending possibilities for uh, helping out the poor and solving poverty. Uh, by the way, Winners Take All mentions very very clever ways some of the uh, strategic uses of their, their focus. So they don't focus on the root cause or they don't focus on inequality because that implicates, right, the class of people who are benefiting from the poverty and the, uh, the, you know, there are winners and losers in that framing, right? But if you focus just on poverty, then it could be about just those people and not about the exploiters and the winners. And even more so if you focus on, as you say, individuals and what individuals can do, and maybe we can help, you know, it, it might it might have been wrong to tell them to lift themselves up from their bootstraps, which is physically impossible, but maybe we can innovate an app that helps them lift themselves up from their bootstraps. Um, anyway, so, so, you know, it's no coincidence that the narratives, and this is part of what Gramsci is saying, the ideology kind of adapts to the material conditions that are 
requiring different narratives to legitimate and justify the power structures as they are. Um, and people are very good at, at coming up with these, these legitimating myths and narratives. Yeah, definitely. Um, an- another one definitely worth, uh, that is very telling is the focus from the, from the Democrat professional Democrats and the billionaire class, uh, at least on the liberal side is the, the just nutty, obsession with education reform over the last decade um there's just been this unbelievable uh uh, deployment of assets and and wealth and effort into reforming education systems to make it you know more productive and like i you know i think that the evidence from what i've seen the evidence on on all of those efforts is is questionable at Best. You know, Mark Zuckerberg did this thing in New Jersey, I think Newark, right? And he spent like hundred billion or no, hundred million dollars and just just pissed it away. Um, but bracketing that question, bracketing the question of education, there's a a, lo- a larger question that is totally unanswerable, which is why education? Um, because if you just want to improve the lives of people and you have $160 billion dollars. Well, one thing you could do is just give them money or better yet, you could restructure the tax system such that they get more money and they get it from you. And that obviously is something that if you're a billionaire, you probably want to rule out from the start. And so one one very nice, convenient little solution here is to say, oh, these people aren't being victimized by the economic system. They just aren't being educated properly and it's a nice it's a perfect solution they're too they're too dumb they're too dumb to succeed is the problem (laughs) if only they were smart like us yeah those motherfuckers it's great no (laughs) by the way by the way coops it's true that like beyond education just help out people would be nice but even in terms of education and what actually if you're about the data what actually leads to educational Outcomes that are positive, the most clear data shows the only real statistically uh, significant factor. Do you want to guess what it is? The only real statistically significant factor. I'll give you, I'll give you three guesses. What, what is the, the number one statistically significant factor when they look at what the correlation is between educational outcomes and what gives rise to them? What, what would you guess? I would guess income of the parents. Yes, household income. That's it. That's the one thing. Yeah. If we look at the household income, we have a pretty good chance at guessing what the educational outcomes will be. Yeah. So even giving money, even giving money to the people beyond just helping them generally, also achieves whatever education goals <laughs> better than this, you know, ridiculousness. Um, that that has been generated with all these various experiments, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's the perfect solution like, for the guilty billionaire because it suggests that it's the it's it's the the problem lies within the individual, but it's also not their fault because they don't have access to the quality education that you would need if you want to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So you get to sort of have your cake and eat it too in terms of egalitarian thinking. The problem is that it's bullshit, you know. It's just like it's it's Total completely bullshit. ridiculous in terms of, you know, policy or, you know, just prioritization. You know, it's it's funny. Um 
Anand in Winners Take All talks about how win-win is is really kind of the the language of the Silicon Valley class, if you will. Market world, and yeah. So he, he, calls he writes, yes, the the, the market world do-gooders. Uh, they're all about the win-win. And I mean, really, the win-win is about them doing well <laughs> and and yeah. thinking that they're serving the public. But but here's the quote that I think is really useful uh, for understanding the the impetus for how narratives are created amongst this class, right? So, quote, the entrepreneurs were willing to participate in making the world better if you pursued that goal in a way that exonerated and celebrated and depended on them. Win-win. Yeah. So as long as long as the way to progress and to helping people exonerates and exculpates those moneyed, you know, that, that moneyed class, and then furthermore depends on them and their genius, right? And their will and their generosity, which as we see in many uh, corresponding legitimating um, pensions like David Brooks and uh, various others who love the fact that they can tip at restaurants, because when they tip, they get to really show their noblesse oblige and show their generosity to those beneath them. Uh, it's that same notion, right? They, they get to feel good about the bad they're doing, essentially. But the thing is, that wouldn't work unless the people that are getting those tips and that are, you know, benefiting from those Bill Gates Foundation programs buy into the logic and the narrative of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, all these people as the good guys. And oh my goodness, look at all that money he just gave. That, so, so the pernicious and dangerous thing is that they're very successful, maybe not to the Trump and Bernie supporters, but to a whole wide swath of centrist liberals and others that buy into this, both for themselves to participate in, but also to laud their heroes, these great individuals that are trying to save us, like Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. However, though, I think it's a, um, this is a good point to introduce another Gramscian idea, which is the war of position. Um, And this, you know, because I think this, uh, the winner take all book, it's, it's a, a, a picture of an ideology that had sort of cultural hegemony status and is losing it now. I think it's, you know, the this sort of ideological uh s- structure is falling apart and it's falling apart because it's just like it's 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 running too hard into the you know the 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 shoals of reality basically i think and um it's just really implausible to people you know it's just it's after the 2008 crisis uh, people, you know, just looking at this carnage caused by financial capitalism and people think like, maybe we need different ideas. And so Gramsci says um, that, you know, one of the tasks of a working class movement is to sort of articulate an alternative ideology, an alternative, you know, uh, picture of how society works that is comprehensible to uh, everyone that can sort of like take root and, and fill the gap left by the collapsing um, hegemonic ideology. 
and um that that you know he has this phrase he likes a lot organic intellectual and by that he means like basically anyone who has any sort of like like thinking job at all you know and that so that could be like a teacher or a journalist or a professor or a you know even just like someone who like talks about politics at work um podcaster podcaster yeah potentially (laughs) and so i you know obviously that's an appealing idea to someone who is a journalist and a podcaster but i i think it's true that i i think this is a thing that needs to be done you know because there have been a lot of cases in which um you know some kind of left-wing or radical movement has you know, taken a sudden success and then kind of retreated for lack of uh, confidence about what should be done. How do you proceed? And I think that it is a somewhat That's a, a good point, a somewhat minor task to 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 like set up those, you know, those sort of roadways for people to go forward through. But I think it's a necessary one. Like, like there's got to be a way for people to grasp and for, you know, policies to implement, you know, the, like ways for people to feel confident about going forward as opposed to just sort of like inchoate resentment about. There stuff. has to be a narrative. There has there has to be a way to make sense of both the diagnosis and the and the prescription, like what's happening. That's the problem and what the answer is. I mean, Gramsci actually saw this himself. He saw the workers physically take the means of production over and then after they did that didn't know they didn't think they knew what to do with it they had this this problem of like uh i think these other people that had power before know what they're doing more and so they like willingly gave back the power they took because they didn't have that uh that apparatus um intellectually to to move them forward um so there is this important political connection between um ideology and um you know political theory and the actual activism on the ground that that helps take the power back um so yeah that 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 can't just be left to um to the cultural narratives that are part and parcel of the hegemonic power structures um and this includes art this includes i mean i don't know if you wanted to talk about this but like you know, uh, I don't know if we'll play the clip of Elon Musk on Stephen Colbert, but Colbert compares him to Tony Stark. You people have called you the real Tony Stark. Are you sincerely trying to save the world? I, well, I'm trying to do good things, yeah. I mean, saving the world is not... not I mean, but you're trying to do good things and you're a billionaire. I mean, yeah. that seems a little bit like either superhero or supervillain. You have to choose one. <laughs> trying to do useful things <laughs> i mean uh-huh yeah and he's like you you are the real world you're the real world tony stark right uh and so tony stark of course super popular marvel comic um character which does what politically it makes people think that the heroes the people who are great and the ones that will save us are those kind of individual uh, idiot savant engineers like Elon Musk who are exceptional. And and that kind of um, feeds into this notion that I think is part and parcel of the uh, cultural hegemony we have now, which is 
the fucking elites, right? They can, whether it's on Wall Street with uh, the derivatives and the, the risk taking that they did, or whether it's the Elon Musk's, the Steve Jobs, rest his soul, uh, those assholes can take as much risk as they want. Actually, they're the geniuses who are rewarded for risk-taking. In fact, their risk-taking is fucking like laudatory and like, wow, look how brave they are and look how audacious in their ideas they are, right? So like we have this narrative that rewards them and and spurs them on to take risk. Meanwhile, they're not bearing any risk, actually. They have no actual risk when they do these fucking things. Um, in fact, the risk is socialized. Like when wall street collapsed in 2008, we bear the consequences of, of those risky ventures not working out. However, when normal working class people have to consider, Oh, can I leave my job? If that's how my health insurance is delivered? Oh no, I better not risk that. And then when people are poor, they're punished or when they lose their job, they're punished and blamed. And, and the narrative is, well, you shouldn't have been, you shouldn't have taken that risk. You should have been more responsible. Right. And so just the, the same way that like Martin Luther King pointed out the crazy logic of nonviolence being rewarded when it's the citizens doing nonviolence, but when the state is being violent in Vietnam and Martin Luther King still says, Hey, you shouldn't do that. They're like, no, 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 that's weakness. When the state is violent, it's strength. And when citizens are violent, it's bad. Right. So it's the same like ideological flexibility that um that we need to combat that that's that's we have to change people's understanding and consciousness about these things um as much as we need to get them to organize at their at their work right yeah yeah and and um i think it's important to note here that that uh you know at least according to gramsci and i and i think you know this is a healthy way of thinking about it um you're what you're if if you are an intellectual, you know, in in the Gramscian sense, the idea is to articulate, you know, the the interests of the working class in a in a way that you know the other members maybe can't do for themselves. the The idea is not to sort of like push your own ideology onto people and try to try to like basically rewrite their sort of thinking i mean i i think that's like a somewhat questionable idea but i i think it's tricky at the least it's 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 a it's a good thing to try to do you know you you're you're you are trying to uh represent people you're not trying to uh uh dominate them you know so it's it's look i have this Believe it or not, it just occurs to me that fine line you, you're drawing between um, imposing ideological frameworks on people rather than helping others situate their experiences, their thoughts, their feelings in, in an articulated way that you could like, uh, you know, one of my favorite poets is a Greek poet, Odysseus Elitis, um, Nobel laureate, uh, brilliant lefty. And so he says to each uh, his own weapons, presumably in the battle, right, for uh, liberation. And so intellectuals have a certain weapon that they can use. And, um, and I find myself in the classroom having this, this kind of line to walk that you, you mentioned a little bit. So, for example, there's a line between a student articulating something and me trying to convince them otherwise or trying to push on them 
and understanding that I want them to have versus me sussing out. And again, it's a little patronizing, but I look, I am the professor, they are a student, but like in this situation, I do try to recognize what somebody's trying to say and help give them the language that can articulate the thing that I think they're trying to say in a way that is fruitful. And there is definitely that kind of art to, to not simply imposing in a ham fisted way what I want them to think. Yeah. 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 And I would further add that, you know, when it comes to, you know, if you're going to like do a strike, I would, I would imagine in, in today's day and age, having someone who could sort of articulate the interests of like McDonald's employees in a comprehensible way uh, is a lot less important and necessary than the rank and file people who are brave enough to like go on strike and so forth, you know, like, like, um, right. There, there is a need for both things. You do need your sort of learned apparatus, but you also need, you know, maybe more importantly as a, just a sort of like necessary, but not sufficient part of even getting some sort of working class project off the ground. The people who will actually, you know, step on the, you know, go on strike or work stoppage or whatever and and take that risk which may be you know considerably greater if you're if that's all you have in terms of money so you know it's not really a self-aggrandizing project either i would say and it's in its best form absolutely yeah there's there's a role and and almost it's almost beside the point to adjudicate like what role is more important and that's almost just not what needs to be focused on at all, but, um, but I mean, there, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I guess as much as it's important for the, the left to understand how it needs to argue against these narratives and, and do that work exposing. So as much as we want, we need counter narratives and counter hegemonic, um, ideologies to perpetuate, simply exposing the Elon Musk and the Jeff Bezos's and the Bill Clinton's and those frauds for what they are is an important service and necessary condition for mobilizing the masses we need to mobilize to make fundamental change happen, I think. And like you said, we're in a time when if we don't do it, Guess who's going to do it? Like the Steve Bannons of the world understand. Look, the fucking Democrats, right? Even after Trump wins, they start propping up a Kennedy. They talk about Bloomberg and Oprah, these fucking rich assholes who they they still don't get it. They still don't get it. And no. Bannon gets it. I mean, the right the right wing populace, they get it. They get the need for a new narrative. Trump gets it. And And if we don't on the left come up with our own meaningful articulated narrative, both of the problem with the elites and the solution, boy, oh boy, aren't we going to cede a lot of power to the fucking fascists? Yeah. I mean, in this, yeah, perhaps as a, just a concluding comment here, cause we're <clears throat> uh, getting on on time, but one thing about, you know, that maybe 
Gramsci was not so clear on was that you you really can just manipulate people like that is a possibility um, to just believe absolute nonsense. Um, you know, demagogues are a thing. And yeah, as you say, you know, somebody's going to have to step up to replace the Trumps and the, uh, you know, Bolsonaro's and the Putin's of the world to, to provide an alternative vision for society. Cause otherwise, you know, people will just play, the, uh, uh, the, the society's darkest impulses like a Fisher price piano keyboard. Yeah. And, and that basic narrative has to be, if you think it's too good to be true, it probably is. No, the world will not benefit from you making a shit ton of money and feeling good about it. And yes, we probably have to sacrifice in order for everyone to do better. And sorry, no, the invisible hand and market fundamentalism uh, are not this beautiful, beneficent, uh, self-regulating thing. And there's any number of things that we can push. But um, thankfully, I think there are those there that are ready to do it. And politicians, it seems, who are also ready to listen to the activists, forcing them and pushing them to fight for those new narratives. So... That's good. I think, uh, yeah, let's let's do it. Let's continue to do it. Absolutely. So All basically, right, the you. the way to the way to revolution is to keep listening to this podcast. Mostly, mostly the downloads is is the thing, and <laughs> you, uh, yeah, spread the word. You are helping the revolution by uh, downloading us. Wait, no, that's not something wrong with that. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for thanks for listening. We'll be uh, we'll be seeing you soon. <laughs> All right everybody. Bye-bye.